hey, before I get into the talk, I just want to say a thing or two about uh, the next two weeks coming up. This is a real special time, as you know. Next weekend is Palm Sunday weekend, and up until now in red letters, I've always made you wait till the weekend to find out what the statement of Jesus was. Right now, I want to go ahead and tell you what the last two weekends of red letters are going to be. On Palm Sunday, we're going to have four wonderful services. We'll be, we'll be receiving communion in all four services, and I'm going to bring you the last major statement of Jesus from the cross when he, when he said, it is finished. And I'm just going to take those three words, actually one word in Greek, tetelestai, but we're going to focus on those three words from Jesus. And I think you're going to be so excited when you find out what all they mean. And then the following Friday, which will be a week from this coming Friday, is Good Friday. And at 7 o'clock on Friday night, we're going to have a Good Friday service here at New Spring. Only be about 45 minutes long very contemplative service, very soft worship. We're also going to receive communion, and I'm going to walk us through the seven statements of Jesus on the cross, and we're going to think about what he's done for us in a good Friday service, 7 o'clock on Friday night, just one service. And then, of course, Easter, five services on Easter. We're actually going to add a 3.30 service on Saturday, so if, if you're a new springer and you don't mind moving, it would probably create more room in this service if you could move to that 3.30 service. If not, don't worry about it, but if you can, if it's, it's something you could do, I would encourage you to think about it because we're looking forward to an explosive weekend on Easter and Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And so, a lot to look forward to in these next, co- next two weeks coming up. Well, today, of course, um, it's a shorter sermon, if you could even call it a sermon, because this is Watermark Weekend, and wasn't it cool to watch your brothers and sisters go public with their faith? I've gotten to be in all five services, and, and I'm just so totally pumped. Up. By the way, you could be here today, and you could say, I need to have that experience. We'll be having another one of these weekends in June, and so if you're interested in that, you could just take the card that you got today, just check the box about baptism, drop it in the offering bag when it comes by, and, and we'll help you get set up to be part of next watermark in June. Uh, today, though, I just want to take us to uh, a thought about Jesus in our series, Red Letters. How could we have a series about Jesus' words without talking about him as a healer. Whenever Jesus encountered people, he dealt with their areas of brokenness. It's even broader than physical healing. There were people that needed emotional healing. Uh, there were people who were dead. Uh, he was Jesus' murder on a funeral business. I mean, he, he, he just, it seemed like he could not encounter brokenness without making it right. And with that in mind, for a few moments, we're going to talk about Jesus the healer. I've talked with a lot of atheists through the years, and usually whenever I'm talking to somebody, by the way, it's interesting. I, I, I always think atheists believe in God. Agnostics, they say we don't know whether there's a God or not, and I think a lot of them are seriously doubtful, but I'm, I think every atheist I've ever met believes in God because they're mad at him. You know, I mean, the thing about it is that they just have an anger and, and an edge about them. I, I, hey, listen, if I didn't believe in God, I wouldn't be angry about it. I've got friends who believe in flying saucers. I'm not mad at them. I just think they're, you know. But it seems like most of the time I run into an atheist usually, and, and by the way, I'm sympathetic because most of the time they've had a bad experience with religion. But they'll almost always get around to a question. It'll be this. Listen, they'll say, I don't believe in God because of all the bad things that happen in the world. He's either all-powerful and he's not good, or he's good, but he's not all-powerful. And it's as if the bad things in the world are proof positive that there cannot be a God. And I'm thinking, 
open the Bible because God tells us from the very beginning why bad things are in our world. When God made our world, there were not bad things in them. God said, look, you can have everything you want. There's one tree, leave it alone because if you eat of it, the dark side's going to come in. Here's the thing. God didn't want robots. He had to give us a choice. He made the choice favor us as much as possible. He didn't say you can only have one tree, leave all the rest of them alone. He said you can have all the trees, leave the one in the middle alone because if you touch it or if you, or if you eat of it rather, you're going to know the dark side. And our first parents, they did it and we can't rip them because given a choice, as you and I have proven, we'll choose brokenness too. So there's the reason why the, the bad things are in our world. But when Jesus came into our world, it was like he, he brought in the kingdom with him temporarily. He, he, he did not come to set up his kingdom the first time. He came the first time to redeem us. By the way, he is coming back to, to be king. And when he does, there will be no brokenness. He will erase all brokenness. That's why in Revelation, you read in heaven, there are no tears, there's no death, there's no sickness. When you read about heaven, it's an awesome place. Why? Because the king is coming in to restore the kingdom, and he will erase all brokenness. But for that three-year period of time, when he had his ministry on the earth, he met sick people. He met people who were disturbed. He even came across funeral processions, and he erased the brokenness. He was, during that time, the healer. Well, we shouldn't have been surprised because, you know, there was a prophecy. In fact, a lot of prophecies about Jesus, but there was a specific prophecy about him coming as a healer. If you have a Bible with you today, you could notice that the Bible is pretty much divided up into two parts. It's got the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, which would be the first 39 books of the Bible. And then there is the New Testament or the New Covenant. Covenant, covenant means deal. So there's the old deal and the new deal. In the, in the old deal, the first 39 books, Genesis through Malachi, there is one prevailing message. If you could, you, you could take all the 39 books of the Old Testament and you could sum up the message in two words. He's coming. When our first parents screwed up, brought sin and the dark side into the world, on that very first day in Genesis 3, God said, I'm going to bring my champion into the world. I'm going to bring my Savior. He's going to pay the price for your sin. He's going to restore everything. So the first 39 books, they said, he's coming. Now, here's the deal. You can read Genesis through Malachi, and you won't read his name because we don't know who his name is yet, but you can read all about him. In fact, well, I could take every book. I could take every one of the 39 books, and I could find Jesus for you somewhere in those books because the message is he's coming. And sometimes it gets very graphic. Psalm 22, David wrote a thousand years before Jesus was born about how that his hands and feet would be pierced and all of his bones would be out of joint. I gave you a talk on that in the Hereafter series. I mean, 300 years before the Carthaginians invented crucifixion. I mean, there's this blow-by-blow description of crucifixion. Isaiah does the same thing in Isaiah 53. So there's a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament that just point directly to Jesus coming. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Well, you get in the New Testament, he's here, and his name is Jesus, and he's awesome. I just summed up the Old Covenant, he's coming, the New Testament, he's here. That's what the Bible is all about. Now, if you were to go to the very last page of the Old Covenant, which is the last chapter of the prophet by the name of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, it's as if the Old Covenant is signing off, and there, there are 400 years of silence between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And by silence, I mean there were no prophets. There were still God followers, but there was just quietness. There's like 400 years of quietness. And then, boom, John the Baptist starts preaching, Jesus is coming, and we're off to the races for the New Testament. But again, I want to go back to that last chapter of Malachi, because as Malachi is signing off, and 
We're about to end the old covenant and go into the 400 years of silence. Malachi is talking to the people. And it's interesting that in Malachi's day, most of the people who should have been God's people were not living right. They were, living, they were all whacked in the area of sex. They, they weren't disciplined. They weren't really focused on worshiping God. And most of the book of Malachi is Malachi telling them, look, that ain't going to end well. But there were some people who were serious about God. And Malachi wanted to write to them at the end of the old covenant and listen to what he said. But to you, or but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise. Now, sun there is S-U-N. It is a metaphor. Sometimes in the Bible, Jesus is compared to the sun or the day star. Why? Because we know there are many stars, but the star that's most prominent to us visually is the sun. It, it, it takes over everything. It governs everything pretty much physically. And so that's why Jesus sometimes is referred to as the son of righteousness. Notice that son there is capitalized. It's a proper noun. This is Mike, Malachi saying, hey, for all of you who are serious about God, I want to tell you some good news. The son of righteousness is going to rise. And now the Holy Spirit allows Malachi to mix his metaphors because he says he will rise with healing in his wings. Well, we live in the Western world. And so when we hear healing in his wings, we're thinking this kind of wings, not at all what Malachi meant. Back in those days, they wore long flowing robes. And the extremity, the edge of the robe, the part that flowed, was called the wings. And what Malachi was saying was, and this is beautiful, Malachi was saying, when this guy comes, he's not going to be like prophets that God gave the ability on rare occasions to heal, where occasionally there would be some miracle done through this prophet. Malachi was saying, this guy ain't going to have just healing in his head. He's not going to have healing in his, just in his arms and, and chest, not just going to have healing in his torso or legs. But Malachi said, this guy's going to be so full of healing, he's even going to have healing in the fringe of his robe. It was Malachi's way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of saying, when he comes, he is going to be a healer like no one has ever seen before. And he was. For the three years that he was on the earth, he healed people. You can read about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We could we could spend hours here talking about all the healings that are in the Bible. And John said that most of the things that Jesus did aren't in the Bible. He said if, if the things that Jesus had done, Jesus did, had been written down, that the world couldn't contain the books. So I'm hoping God kept it all on videotape so when we get to heaven, we can watch all the stuff that Jesus did that didn't get written about. So obviously, I've got about 15 minutes and so what we're going to do today, I started to say we're going to take a day in the life of Jesus, but probably what we're going to do is look at an hour in the life of Jesus. And we're going to look at a couple of people, a couple of females, that he helped. And we're going to learn a lot about him in this story. I'm just going to walk you through it. This isn't really a sermon, okay? I'm just going to walk you through this. If you have your Bible, you can read it with me. If not, it'll be up on the IMAG screens. It's in Mark chapter 5, and we'll start in the 22nd verse. Jesus, of course, just moving around. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Well, you and I read that. We think, okay, here's the leader of a synagogue, religious dude. He goes and talks to Jesus. Makes all the sense in the world, right? Right? 
wrong. <laughs> we are dealing with a guy who probably would have nothing to do with Jesus on an ordinary day. Because when Jesus came into the world, he upset the religious elite's apple cart. They, they had a cottage industry basically built on winning the respect and the trust and the admiration of people that were not considered really good people. And so they had this whole thing going where they, where they got respect and they got admiration. And on occasion, they were actually even favored financially because they were the religious elite. Jesus came along and said, hey, anybody can have a relationship with God. I mean, the hookers and what we, you know, the alcoholics and the drug addicts and people that you know, just thought they couldn't get a hold on life would come to Jesus, and Jesus would tell them, look, I can, I can give you a life. Well, the religious elite didn't like that message. And on most days, they not only didn't want anything to do with Jesus, they ostracized anybody who did have anything to do with Jesus. So for this young dad to break protocol and go running, and not only did he come to Jesus, he knelt down in front of him. You know what this makes me think of? It's how a lot of us come to Jesus. We come to Jesus when we're in trouble. Now, now God doesn't, it's not God's will that we have trouble, but God's not above using trouble in our lives. I, I'm guessing that there are people here today who have a relationship with Jesus, and there was a time when you didn't have a relationship with God, you didn't want anything to do with God, because your friends at the university thought anyone who believed in God was a Neanderthal. And so consequently, you didn't believe in God because after all, everything was going okay. You had it going on. You're getting good grades in school. You're making a little money. You're going to have a great career. Everybody likes you. You drive a nice car. And you're thinking, what do I need God for? Then boom, all the wheels fall off. We, we, we listened to some stories in the baptism. Uh, in the last service, we had a, a man talk about how that his world fell apart, and it was in that moment that he found Christ. And he, he just accepted Jesus two days before. And when he said, I want to be baptized because, he said, I want every, he said, I think the Lord wants to show off the newest family member. But he was very obvious, honest and obvious that he would not have even thought about God unless the wheels of his life had fallen off. Last night, there was a dad who talked about having a baby that was ill, and it was in that time that he came to encounter God. You, I, I, there's something about going through difficult times that makes us, makes us reach down deep within us and embrace what we knew to be true all along, that we know God is there. I mean, look, anybody in their right mind would look at this magnificent world that is created and realize it didn't happen by accident. You know, I, I love, I love, you know, I love the term evolution. The way it gets thrown around a lot today. Like I'll watch this program on the, you know, on the, on the Discovery Channel or something, and they'll talk in real breathy terms about the evolution of the airplane. Well, I know good and well they didn't leave a Piper Cub out there on the runway and it turned into a 747. Man, there were engineers and you know, and designers and and factory workers that put it together. It didn't happen by accident. And yet in our world, you, think, you, you take all the aircraft engineers in the world, and they couldn't create a sparrow. I mean, we can't get our 747s to reproduce themselves, but God does that with eagles every day. See, here's the deal. It's, you know, everyone says, God would just prove himself. Man, God has proven himself so overwhelmingly. The thing of it is, is that we don't think about God until we really need him. And that's what happened with Jairus. Jairus said, you know, I'm sure that 
He had friends that would have written him off for going to see Jesus, but he was thinking, man, my, my baby's sick. My baby's dying. And i got to tell you something. Nothing gets my attention as much as one of my three boys getting sick or my wife getting sick or my granddaughter's getting sick or my daughter's-in-law getting sick. That gets me on my knees real fast. And Jairus went running to Jesus, and he said, would you just come and lay your hands on my little girl, and she will live. Now, you know, here's what I love about Jesus. Because Jesus, if, if, if Jesus had been like a lot of us, Jesus would have, we would, you know, he would have said something like this. Look, buddy, you didn't have any time for me when everything was going well, and now your girl's getting sick, and you want me to go help you? I don't think so. That's how Jesus would respond if he was like some of us. But if you look at verse 24, it says Jesus went with him. He just said, okay. Aren't you glad God doesn't treat us the way we treat him? And Jesus said, okay, I'll go. I'll be glad to go with you. All the people followed, verse 24, crowding around him. And now all of a sudden we get a new person in our narrative. Verse 25, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. And I don't know what you underlined in that verse, but I underlined the word constant. Is there anybody here who's had constant health problems? Constant pain. You know, it, m- most of us know what it's like to have pain for a few days or know what it's like to have a problem for, for a short period of time. But if you've ever had constant pain, I, I remember when we were building this building, I had a case of sciatica. I had a herniated disc. And I remember there was no way in the world I could get comfortable. Sitting wasn't comfortable. Standing wasn't comfortable. Lying down wasn't comfortable. About the only thing that would give me any relief is if I was walking. And I can remember getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning and just walking through the neighborhood trying to get some kind of relief. And the one thing I learned about my one encounter with constant pain is that it has an erosive quality after a while. If you have a constant health problem after a while, it will begin to mess with your mind. And that's what happened with this poor gal for 12 years. I mean, that's a long time to be sick with something. She had bleeding, probably gynecological bleeding, which would have meant in that day, imagine this. I mean, let me, let me go ahead and read this verse to you. In verse 26, it says, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay for them, but she'd gotten no better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. So here's the woman, day in and day out, she is losing blood, which means she's probably dealing with anemia, she's weak, she, she, she's pale, and, and just, just get into her world for a moment. I mean, she would hear about a new doctor, and she would think, well, maybe this doctor's got a treatment, and she would go and go through all the rigors and the difficulty of that treatment and suffer physical pain because of the treatment, lay down money, and walk away and not be better but be worse. This had gone on for 12 years until she was sick, she was broke, and oh yeah, she dealt with something that we wouldn't have to deal with today. There was a social stigma attached to a woman who was bleeding. She would have to tell everybody. Can you imagine this? She would have to tell everybody about it so that they would be sure not to touch her. In fact, the word would be unclean. She, she could not get married. She, she was not allowed to get married, and if she had gotten married and she had been discovered, it was a criminal act on her part. Can you, can you just get into her world? For 12 years, she had hoped to get better, and yet day in and day out, she got worse. She got financially more strapped, and beyond that, totally embarrassed. Verse 27 says she had heard about Jesus, so she came behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, 
I will be healed. Why did she think that? She'd read Malachi. Malachi said, for all of you who believe in him, this guy is so great that he's got healing even in the fringes of his trouble. And the woman, she thought, this is her, she could I do something for a moment? I want to read this to you out of the Amplified Translation, which is, it kind of spells it out and gives the inferences of the Greek. It says, for she kept saying, well, who's she talking to? She's talking to herself. She kept saying, if I only touch his garments, I shall be restored to health. I mean, get into this picture for a moment. Here come, here's Jesus. This young dad has just said, please come and help my 12-year-old girl. She's dying. And Jesus said, you bet, I'll go. Big crowd now following Jesus to see what's going to happen. In the crowd is this woman who's been sick for 12 years, bleeding, broke, stigmatized. And she keeps looking at Jesus, and she's talking to herself. She knows it's wrong by the law to touch Jesus. She could get into all kinds of trouble for touching Jesus. She could defile Jesus. She could make him ceremonially unclean. But she keeps talking to herself. And I think this is what she's saying to herself. This is great. She's saying, you know what? If I touch him, I will be healed. And if I'm healed, it's not a problem to touch him because I won't be what I was when I came to touch him. What I, what I love about this story is I don't believe this woman knew exactly what was going to happen, but she was desperate. And I think she was saying, I'm going to try it. Hey, let me tell you something. A lot of us, you know, we talked about Jairus. A lot of us come to Jesus when we get into trouble. A lot of us also come to Jesus when we're desperate, and we don't know. I mean, we don't know every, I mean here, listen, I've been a believer for 46 years. There's a ton of stuff I still don't understand, but Jesus is so powerful that if you will come to him when you're desperate and just try him, you'll be amazed at what he does in your life. How many of us pray to prayer something like this? God, I don't know if you're out there, but if you're out there, will you hear my prayer? I'm desperate. I need you. How many of us prayed something like that only to experience God moving into our life through Jesus Christ? <laughs> I think that's what this woman was thinking. What have I got to lose? I'm sick. I'm dying. I'm broke. I'm stigmatized. But if I can just touch him, I'm going to try him. Verse 29, immediately the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that the healing power had gone out from him. If you could see my notes, I've got a line drawn from where she could feel that she was healed. And Jesus felt that healing had gone out of him. You know, this is, this is time for a lot of us who grew up in church to... To learn something. I think a lot of us have the idea that Jesus helped heal people. He just has some sort of hoodoo or, you know, mojo working. And, and, or maybe like us old, really old people who can remember the Bewitch show. Maybe he just wink, wink, you know, wiggled his nose and people were healed. No, it wasn't like that at all. Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes we are healed. Jesus was paying for all this healing. That's why he could feel it. Please, listen, I'm not being sacrilegious with you. But when Jesus was healing all these people, it was sort of like he was swiping the card. He, he was basically putting it on account because he was going to pay for all this. And, I mean, listen, every time that whip came down on Jesus' back and ripped the flesh off it, every time a nail went into his hands, every time a thorn was beaten down into his brow, Jesus was paying for healing. By his stripes we are healed. And when this woman was healed, Jesus 
felt something go out of him, he knew he was going to pay for that. <laughs> and knowing that, in verse 30, he said, who touched my robe? Well, there's a huge crowd around him. Uh, verse 31, I love how Jesus' disciples always tried to educate him. I mean, the Bible says they were unlearned and ignorant men. They always wanted to educate Jesus. They always set him straight on something. I mean, like, you know, Jesus created everything. He wrote the code for DNA. And these fishermen want to tell him about life. <laughs> we'll see that on Easter. Watch for this. On Easter, at Lazarus, you know, when, when Jesus was waiting for four days after Lazarus died, and Jesus finally told him that Lazarus was dead, but he said he, he's asleep because to, to Jesus' death, like the Negro spiritual death, ain't no big thing. And so the disciples, when they heard Jesus say that Lazarus was asleep, and they said, Lord, we've been reading prevention, and if he sleeps, he's going to be doing great. And finally, Jesus said, guys, Lazarus is dead. But they were always trying to educate him. And so Jesus said, who touched my robe? His disciples said, look at the crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around. You know why? Because somebody had touched him differently. I don't know how many people will have at New Spring this weekend, probably somewhere between 4,500 and 5,000. And we'll all touch Jesus. We'll all worship. We'll all listen to this talk. And we'll think about God. But some of you will touch him in a different way. Some of you will touch him because you are desperate. And you must have Jesus in your life. See, people like me today, today, as far as I know in my world, at least at this moment today, I feel good. I'm in good health. My family's all healthy. I have everything I need. I have most of what I want. My life is really good. Yes, I'm going to enjoy Jesus today. I'm going to enjoy this talk. But some of you today are hanging on by your fingernails, and you must have Jesus in your life, and you're going to touch him in a way that he will feel it differently than he will feel it from the rest of us. He seems to really care for desperate people. That's why I hate religion. That's why I love Jesus. Jesus kept looking around. <laughs> See who had done it, verse 33. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and told him what she had done. And he, Jesus, said to her, Daughter, you really cost me. I'm really going to have to pay for this. Wish you hadn't done that. Is that what he said? No. Daughter, your faith has made you well. I'm going to read out of the Amplified now. I need to move to Amplified. Go into peace and be continually healed and freed from your distressing bodily disease. Hey, isn't that great? I mean, think about this. This was going to cost Jesus. Stripes were going to fall on his back. His flesh was going to be ripped out. He was going to be nailed to a cross to pay for what this woman just got, but he wanted her to enjoy her healing. Just the same way for all of you who have invited Jesus to come into your life. You're a sinner. You don't deserve to go to heaven, but he wants you to enjoy being forgiven. He, I mean, this is what I love about you know, New Spring. We want things to be joyful, relevant, and irresistible. Why? Because relationship with Jesus shouldn't be dead and dry and painful like religion. It ought to be vibrant, living, and joyful. We ought to be the happiest people in the world because somebody took our hell for us. 
And Jesus wants you to enjoy it. I mean, he, he was going to cost him, but he wanted this gal to go experience some life. He wanted her to go enjoy her healing, to enjoy days that weren't like the days from the last 12 years. Wow, Jesus is awesome. While he was still speaking to her, verse 45, 35, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter's dead, no use troubling the teacher now it's too late. <laughs> when, when things are too late for all the rest of us, it's not too late for Jesus. See, I'm talking to some of you here today, and, and, and you're hearing all this about Jesus transforming life, and you're getting it, but you're saying, but Mark, it's too late for me. My family won't have anything to do with me anymore. I've told people I was going to change so many times, and they think I'm a liar, and they won't have anything to do with me anymore, and it's too late. It's good for some people here. It's, let, me, let me just tell you this. If you are breathing today, it is not too late for you if you hook up with Jesus. It may be, I, I may not be able to help you. Others here may not be able to help you, but it's never too late for Jesus. If you're still breathing, there's time for him. And then, after we quit breathing and we leave this life, for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, it's not too late then. Jesus overheard them, the people that told Jairus it's too late, and he said to him, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anybody go with him except Peter, James, and John. Verse 38, when they came to the home of the synagogue teacher or leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, and he made them all leave. You laugh at Jesus, he'll make you leave the room. He took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed, totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them, because she was a preteen, to give her something to eat. Last night, after giving this talk twice, I left the campus and immediately went to the hospital. I found out during the services last night that one of our little girls, a new springer, was in a really bad accident. She's 11 years old, and she needs a miracle. And I went up and I stood by her bed and I held her little arm in my arm in my hand and prayed for her. And I don't know what God will do. But I thought at that moment that there are a lot of us who read the Bible, especially us Sunday school kids like me. We read the Bible and in our minds. These are stories that happened a long time ago. But as I prayed, there was one verse that lit me up. It's Hebrews 13, 8, and it just says this, Jesus Christ, the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. He was the healer yesterday. He's still the healer today, and he will be the healer forever. And I can just say this to you today. Some of you, are, you're desperate, and you came in today, and you thought, wow, I'm hanging on by my fingernails. Is there a message for me? I want to tell you there's more of a message for you than anybody here. Because Jesus loves dealing with people who are so desperate, they put everything out of the way just to get to him. If you will do that today by faith, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can reach out to him. I'm going to pray. You pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, we believe what we read, and we need you. And some of us need you desperately. We need your healing power. We need your ability that only you have to make a broken world right. And we know that the day's coming when you're going to do it all completely. But we need you in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. One more prayer. It could be that you're here today and you say, Mark, I've got the worst brokenness of all. I'm a sinner, and I don't know how to have a relationship with God. Could I tell you that Jesus, Jesus paid for all your sin on the cross? Here's the thing. By rights, we're all sinners. What should happen with sinners? The Bible's very clear. Hell. But God didn't want anybody to go to hell. So he put his son on the cross, and we'll talk about that next week. And Jesus hung on a cross to pay for your hell. And, and, and here's the thing. What God wants from you is just to accept, like this woman, to touch him, by faith to accept him. And if you do it, Jesus will forgive you, and he will say, go enjoy your forgiveness. If you would like to have Jesus into your life, you say, well, I don't understand everything. I don't understand everything either, but I know this. I know that if, you're, if you'll come to him and give him a try, there's a living God on the other end of your prayer. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm going to pray it slowly. These aren't magic words. These are just words that call out to Jesus. And if you want to join me in this prayer, you can repeat it after me. And I'm going to say it really slowly because it's not saying the words. See, you're not just repeating words. That won't do anything. That's what happens in religion. It's what you mean in your heart that matters. So I'm going to pray it slowly so you can pray it from your heart. You ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus... I'm broken. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I cannot save myself. But I believe you paid for my hell on the cross. I don't know why you love me so much, but I receive your love. I receive your forgiveness. I, tr I put all my trust in you, Jesus. As my Savior and King, I touch you by faith. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.